The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Hey, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 3, if you would. If you don't have a Bible or an app or something like that, just stick a hand up nice and high and some kind gentlemen who will uh, make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you, and we pray that God would use it to teach you more about Him and draw you into a close, close relationship with Him. Um, but we do want to be able to teach. We teach from the Word, verse by verse, and we want you to be able to follow with us so that you know it's not just me making stuff up, that this is God speaking to us this morning. It's important. So um, just stick a hand up nice and high. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. If not, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to be starting at verse 15. Um, while you're turning there, there, was one quick announcement that I missed that was brought to my attention. Today's the last day to sign up for the spring break youth trips. Um, Pastor Jeremy is taking the junior high and then coming back and then grabbing the high school and taking them or vice versa. I forget the order. Um, but they're going down to Yosemite and spending some time during spring break down there just hanging out, having fun, getting into the Word. I think Jeremy said that the topic is like, what is it like to hear from God? They're going to spend some time doing about some of those things and, and just fellowshipping. So if you have not signed up yet, either do so on our website, heritagefellowship.net, or stop by the table out here on your way out, the information desk, and they can help you do that as well. Um, I want to say the cost was 90 bucks, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that uh, was what the total was, but it was like crazy affordable to go to Yosemite. Like, I would pay that myself if I could get off work, but, um, and was young. But Galatians 3, verse 15 is where we're going to be this morning. And I'm going to read the text that I'm going to cover. It, I'm going to warn you in advance, this is a really technical, um, it, it, it's kind of a, a I'm going to have to labor through a couple things in this text. It's just one of those chapters, um, but there's fruit in that. You know what I mean? Um, there's fruit in digging and in studying. So we're going to read through this, and we're going to pray that God would guide us and teach us, and then we'll dive in. Beginning in verse 15, it says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Let's pray. God, your word teaches us that these things of the Spirit are only understood by your Spirit. So God, unless you come, unless your spirit moves and, and reveals these things to us, Lord, we're wasting our time. Because God, the teachings of men apart from your spirit do us no good, Lord. Men come and go, ideas and philosophies come and go, but your word never fails. And so God, we pray that your spirit would move in this place, that those that are of the faith would be brought to a greater understanding of who you are and who we're called to be. And that, Lord, those who are not, those who don't know you might understand their need for you as a Savior and understand your goodness and your greatness and be drawn to you. And so, God, as we always pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. The book of Galatians is different than all of Paul's other letters. We've talked about some of this before. It has a very different feel, very different purpose, and was written in a very different vein than all the other letters. And you can tell it from the very beginning. Because at the beginning of Paul's letters, he tends to go on these, these sort of like big, mushy, I love you, mwah, 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 kind of things to the churches that he's writing to. I miss you guys. Oh, mwah, you're amazing. Even the Corinthians, as horrible as they were, I love you. You're the seal of my apostleship. Mwah, mwah, mwah. He doesn't do that at all with the Galatians. He dives right into content. He, he addresses the fact that he's their spiritual father, that they're brothers in Christ. But then he's like, what are you doing? Because Paul actually writes this letter, well, he's angry. Paul's angry. In fact, we've talked about before, there's this repetitive nature to the book of Galatians. He, he's making one argument, but he's making it over and over and over and over. And knowing that to be the case, and knowing that he writes this book from a place of anger, you might call it a little bit of a rant. Like he's hammering this point home. You need to know this. What are you doing? And he's driving this point home over and over from every angle he possibly can. Now, when I say that, already some of you get a little uneasy, like angry. No, it's the Bible. The Bible's not ever angry. Paul's not going, what are you doing? Paul's going, to give a human example, brothers, even with man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds or gives to it. No, that's not what Paul's doing, I assure you. Now, the reason that it can be uncomfortable for some of us is because we tend to associate all of anger with sin. To us, anger is sinful. And we might even think of Jesus' writings where he talks about you may not have committed murder, but if you have had anger in your heart towards your brother, then you are guilty as well. And we go, see, anger is sin, but that's not true. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible... It says, be angry and sin not, which tells us two things. On one end, there is a way to be angry that is not sin, but also think about it. He says, by the way, be angry. Like God commends anger to us. Now, it sounds unfamiliar because like I said, we tend to associate anger with sin. And the reason is we don't get angry about the things God is angry about. We get angry about different things and that is sinful. What do we get angry about? We get angry about things that affect us. So when a car cuts us off in traffic, we get angry because we've been inconvenienced. When someone insults us, it's our pride that's been wounded, so we get angry. I mean, that tends to be the way anger uh, kind of flourishes or comes out, if you will, in us. But God is angry when the poor are oppressed, when his children are abused, when his glory is trampled on, when his gospel is messed with. Those are things that God says, my children need this, and you are hampering what my children need, and because I'm a good father, I'm angry. And, and anger, righteous anger, is a characteristic of God. Jesus even used it in the temple, did he not? When the very sacrificial system that was intended for people to come make amends for their sins, but also learn something of, very, of the very character of God was being trampled on by the religious leaders, and they were making profit off of it and making it difficult for people, especially the poor who had no money, to come in and participate in the sacrifices that God had instilled. When Jesus saw it, he was angry. And I love the way the, the Gospels talk about it. Like Jesus came in, he saw what was going on, and he was so angry, righteously angry at what he saw, he went and made a whip. Now think about that. Like it's not like he just had one and then reacted out of anger. He went and took time to fashion a whip. You know what that means? Like he had time to cool down. Like he had time to think through all the possible responses. This is what I see. What should I do? And the whole time, the conclusion he comes to is, yep, this. And he goes right at it. And did Jesus sin? No. We get angry at the stuff that bothers us. The things that God gets angry about, we should be angry about. And this is what Paul is doing because people are messing with the gospel. And they're leading God's people astray. And Paul is over it. And so you have this kind of rant that goes on, and it's really important because they're, they're messing with the entire foundation. Remember when Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, hey, do, who do people say that I am? Peter says, well, some people say you're Elijah, because Elijah did all these amazing miracles, and they see the stuff that you're doing, and it's just incredible. 
And some people say that you're Moses. Moses is the one who brought the law, the lawgiver, and no one teaches the word and knows the law the way you do. And, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, but forget all that. Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the most high king. And Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, he didn't mean that Peter will be the first pope, and we're going to build the church on that. What he meant was the reality of the Messiah sent by God, that I, Jesus, am the one who saves, that will be the foundation of the church. And if the church is built on that foundation, hell has no chance against it. And so now here we are in Galatia, and Paul's planted these churches throughout this region on that foundation, but a group of men known as Judaizers have come in, and they're messing with it. They're going, yeah, Jesus is good. Jesus is important. We all need Jesus, but, but you need more than that. You need to do some works. You need to serve Jesus like this. You need to do some good deeds here. You need to manifest God here. You need to be obedient to the law here. You need the circumcision. You need all these things. And if you think about it, they're going right back to the answer that Peter was giving before the actual revelation was giving. They're saying, you need to do good works like Elijah did. You need to follow the law like Moses did. And they're going back to a foundation other than the one that Jesus said, no, no, no. It's me. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's nothing to add to that equation. But that's what's happening, and the people are following it, and Paul is over it. And so he writes this book, and it's got this kind of Groundhog Day repetitive nature to it where you're seeing the same thing over and over, but it's important. And so he dives in, and he starts talking about it. And in chapter 3, chapter 3 is maybe the hardest one to work through in the whole book because he goes through some pretty technical proofs for his whole argument. Uh, and, and as we've seen the last couple of weeks, he says, look, the, the, go back to your own conversion. When you got saved, what did you do to earn it? Like, did you go do some great works and that's how you got saved? No, you just found out about the grace of God and you received it and you were saved. And he goes, to, go, goes into um, Abraham. He's like, remember Abraham? Abraham was saved by faith before the law even came. So how can the law factor in? How can all these works factor in? That had nothing to do with Abraham. And now he goes into the law itself. We started last week. What he does, he says, if, if you're saying that to be saved, we need Jesus, plus we have to be obedient to all of this law, well, then let's consider what the law itself says. And we don't have time to rehash it all, but last week we saw how he just lets the Old Testament speak for itself, and it proves that faith and righteousness by faith is what saves, and that's all that was ever intended. And so now he's going to continue with this. He's going to push more on the idea in particular with the idea of then why have the law in the first place? What's the point? I mean, why 430 years later do you give the law if everything was working fine before that? What's the point? And so he says in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, and it doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. And if you guys remember from the first part of chapter 3, we saw, actually it says so in verse uh, 8, or, let's try again, Galatians 3 verse 8 says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, did what? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So, so we know that God, in his revelation to Abraham, was giving the promise of this Messiah that was going to come deliver everyone. And he's saying, it's not salvation by many or by all these people that work through the law themselves. Even the promise to Abraham was, given a, was talking about offspring, singular, the son that would come through the lineage of Abraham to be the Savior. This is what he means here. And who is Christ? Verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So this is what it means. So Abraham is justified by faith. You can read about it in Genesis 12. You get this promise of God to Abraham that says, through you will all nations be blessed and in Genesis 15, this promise is reiterated to Abraham, and the scriptures say that Abraham believed the promise, and God called him in that moment righteous. Now, Abraham was not called righteous because he was obedient, though in many places he was obedient. I mean, he had waited for that one son for a really long time, 
God says, you're going to take Isaac up on the hill. You're going to offer him as a sacrifice. And amazingly, Abraham goes. He's going to do it. That's incredibly obedient. But that's not what made him righteous. God credited him with righteousness, or in other words, said, you're mine. You have, literally, you've been saved by grace because of your belief in me. That happened way before Isaac was even born. It's simply God made a promise of salvation to Abraham, and Abraham said, I believe you. My faith is in you. And God said, righteous, you're forgiven. And then 430 years later, here comes the law. Israel gets delivered from Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. The law is written, given to Moses. It's brought down the hill, and it's given to the people of Israel. So this is what's going on. So you had salvation already. Now the law comes. And so, so here's what's important. Some people would argue, and Paul's anticipating an argument here. Some people would argue and say, okay, okay, okay great. Abraham was saved by faith before. Got it. But 430 years later, God did give the law, and we have to do something with it. And he's God. Can't he change his mind? So clearly, God has added something. That's why he brought the law all this time later. It started out like this, but now God has added another element. And he's God, and he has the right to do that, and we just need to follow that. That's what people would would say. And so he addresses this by speaking about covenants. The law was part of the covenant that governed God's relationship with Israel. And he just goes into a, a legal discussion with them and says, look, if you, let's say your parents had a a, a really nice home, good vacation plan they had saved up, and then also they, they they had a couple of cars, and at some point in their life, they put their will together. And they say, Jeff, I'm gonna leave you my house, two cars, we got a retirement plan, all this kind of stuff, we're gonna make you executor of the will, you're gonna be the primary beneficiary, so you're gonna receive all of this stuff uh, when we die. And they go to an attorney and they get the covenant ratified, they get the right paperwork written out in the right way, they get all that done the way it's supposed to be done, it's all signed, ratified, sealed, put in the file, whatever it is you do with wills, that, that gets done and it's all done. And then some years later, your parents die. And so it's time to open up the will, to read the covenant. What is the provision that's there? And there in there is a promise to you that says, hey, your parents have promised to you that upon their death you will receive, and it's all listed out right there, right? And so let's say then that promise that was made years earlier is now read by the judge. Yep, I'm reading this will. It's done the right way. It's signed by an attorney. Everything looks good. It says here that you receive this house, this estate, this retirement plan, this car, this car, um, their cat if you want it, whatever the case may be that's in the list. They promise all that stuff to you. And then the judge says, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to give all of this stuff to you. But I, here's what I want you to do. You're gonna, I need you to prove to me that you actually deserve this kind of kindness. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you everything that they left to you as soon as you show me that you've graduated from college with good grades, you've got involved in a church, you're a functioning member of society, you're donating money to the poor, you're involved in a couple of nonprofit organizations, and you're a Tar Heel fan. Sorry, they lost last night, I'm wounded. But, so, so he lays out all these things, that he said, these are good characteristics of a good person, and when you can prove to me that you've done all of these things, that way I know that this promise is being given to someone who deserves it. Well, that can't, that's, that can't happen, right? We would lose our minds if that happened. We would lawyer up and go to town if something like that happened. And that's what Paul's saying. Look, God is not changing the rules on a promise that he's already giving you. There's a difference between a covenant and a promise, and he's not trying to do this. He's not trying to change the rules on you, because even if he did, it means that his promise that he made before was just straight up a lie. He made a promise, he's good on his word, and so you can't argue that he's changing things now. There is a difference between a covenant and a promise. And look, in the old covenant, the relationship that God had with people was governed by the covenantal laws. It, it was arranged. You can read it in Exodus 30. You can read it in Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30. I said Exodus 30. I meant Exodus 20. I'm sorry. Where God says, hey, Israel, listen, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to shepherd you. I'm going to lead you, and you're going to be my people. So, so here's what I'll do, and then here's what you'll do. You'll have no other gods before me. You'll have no idols. You're going to honor the Sabbath, you know, all of those kinds of things. And there was these covenantal rules that both parties would take care of that governed the way that their relationship worked. And you can go into Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30, and you see this list of blessings and curses based on that. 
where God says, okay, if you obey the rules of this covenant, you're going to be blessed like this. Your, your nations are going to be blessed. Your family's going to be blessed. Your crops are going to be blessed. All of these things. But then he says, but if you go against this covenant, if you're not faithful to this covenant, and then here are all the cursings that are going to come down. And that's the old covenant. But, but then in Jeremiah 30, as you guys know, or Jeremiah 31, he says, there's a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not like the old covenant that I made with your forefathers before me, the ones who, though I was a good husband to them, they were unfaithful to me. But here's the covenant I'm going to do. And this covenant is really different than the old one because it says, I'm going to do this and this and this. I'm going to, put my, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to put my spirit within you. No one's going to need to teach you. I'm going to put my law within your heart. And he goes on and on of all these things that he's going to do. And what's glaringly absent from the new covenant is anything that we're supposed to do. It's just not there. There's no provision for, and you will be part of this covenant as long as you do this and do this and do this. Go to church every Sunday, tithe every Sunday, give this much money, donate this, be this, don't drink this, don't smoke that, all of those kind of things. That's just not there. Because it's not a covenant, it's a promise, really. It's the promise of a son that was given originally to Abraham that the scriptures speak about over and over and over and over. It's the new covenant, but it can be described honestly just as easily or better as just saying it's the promise of a savior that's been given. And you say, but, but, but what do we bring to the table? We have to bring something to the table if we're getting such a deal like this. I mean, come on, nothing's free in this world, right? So what do we bring to the table? I love the words of that great Scottish preacher, Alistair Begg, who pastors in Cleveland like all great Scottish preachers do. He says, the only thing that you bring to the table in your salvation is the sin that you need forgiveness from in the first place. That's it. Our salvation and our relationship with God has absolutely nothing to do with what we've done to bring to the table. Our relationship with God has everything to do with how good and gracious and amazing he is. And what Paul's trying to do here, remember, he's not talking to people that don't know Jesus. He's talking to the church. And he's saying, listen, you have let people come in and drag you back to this way of looking at my relationship with you as if my love for you is dependent on all these things that you do. And why is he so fired up? Because listen, that never works out well. Every one of you in this room, listen to me. If you try to look within yourself to find reason that God loves you, give up. It's not there. If your favor with God is determined by how obedient you are or how good you are, that is going to be the most insane relationship you could ever have. On some days, you're going to feel really loved because you're nailing it, but now you're prideful about that, so now that just dropped, and then it's up and down and up and down, and your relationship with God becomes, at best, a roller coaster, and that's assuming we have good days in the first place. Paul wants us to stop returning to this performance-driven old religion. It's really a Jewish way of looking at salvation that says, God is happy with me as long as I do these things. And he says, will you stop? Stop looking at the law. And when you're looking at the law, you're really looking within. Stop looking at what you do. Stop looking at how good you are or how behaved you are. Stop looking within to try to find a reason for why I love you because it doesn't exist. You need to look outside of yourself to the Savior that has been promised to you. You need to look to Jesus Christ because there is no other name under heaven by which man may be saved. And that is a free gift from God. And he doesn't want us to do that because he knows if we keep looking within, all that sets us up for is anxiety. Anxiety, discouragement, depression. I mean, you can't possibly have assurance of your salvation if this is the way that you judge your salvation with God. Like, how, how could you ever in any given moment say with 100% certainty that you are absolutely assured that you're saved if you're basing it on how well you do and don't? Because we're train wrecks. We're all over the place. I, you, you can't have assurance in God, and Scripture yet tells us that we can have assurance in God. So somewhere in there, something's wrong, and Paul's saying, just, will you stop? You're working so hard, and yet we serve Jesus Christ who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Stop this striving and rest in Jesus. This is what the gospel is. 
You know, and look, I'm, I'm not just making this up, and this isn't just in, Revel, or in Galatians. It's in all sorts of places. I'll, I'll give you one example that we've all probably missed a million times that lays this out pretty clearly and simply. It's the Lord's Prayer. The gospel of not works-based, but grace-based salvation is in the Lord's Prayer. Because how does it go? It says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our, which word do you use? How many are trespass people? How many are debtors? Yeah, it depends on where you go, right? It depends on what, what translation you use. But, but what it says, I'm going to use the word debt in this case. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now we've prayed that a million times. Seems like a simple forgiveness thing. It's really good. But think about what you're saying. Because it's really similar to like the Ten Commandments. You know, in the Ten Commandments, the first four are these laws that govern how we relate to God. They're vertical. No other gods before me. No graven images. Honor the Sabbath. It's all about giving God glory and honor. And then it goes into honor father and mother. Don't lie, cheat, steal. Those are the things that govern our relationships with men. And the Lord's Prayer is actually similar if you think about it. It starts off, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be made famous all over the world. May everyone know who you are. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will on earth happen with unbridled, with nothing holding it back, just like happens in heaven. It's this huge prayer about the grandeur of God. And then all of a sudden it shifts. And it's really weird if you think about it. May your will be done, all of these things. Oh, and we need some bread. You know what I mean? That's really, that's really the essence of what it is. Think of the miracle of that. The Psalms say, who am I that you would be mindful of me? Like, we're praying this amazing thing about God and his kingdom and his majesty. And then we're like, and all these life's little necessities that we need, Lord, will you be faithful to provide for me in that way? I mean, that's a miracle. And then it goes into, forgive us our debts. Jesus, remember, is teaching this prayer to his disciples, not to unbelievers or whatever, to his disciples. He's saying, this is how you pray. And he doesn't say in there, if you have any debts, then pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive. He straight up said, you you have debts. Peter, don't push back, dude. Look, you all have debts. So it's already assumed that we, have, we owe God, that we have failed in our calling and our responsibility to him. It's just a given in every prayer that we're supposed to do. Confession, there should never be a prayer we do without confession. So he just assumes it. And, and then the, the amazing part of that is he doesn't say, forgive us our debt, or excuse me, he says, forgive us our debts. What he doesn't say is, and Lord, regarding our debts, will you give us the energy and the spirit and the instruction to pay them back? You ever thought about that? Like never in that prayer does he say, and help us to repay our debts to you because we owe you. No, he says right then, pray for grace. Pray for forgiveness. You can't pay this debt back if you need, if you, you, you have no idea. Frankly, most of you don't even realize some of the debts that you've incurred because you're so aware of some of your sinfulness in some areas. So this is what you need to pray. Every time you pray, say, Lord, forgive me and ask for grace. And, and do it confidently because you're praying to who? Our Father. Not an unjust judge or a wicked king, but our gracious, loving Father. I mean, the gospel is throughout every thread of this book, and not once is the gospel presented based on merit. We got doves in here flying around. Those aren't doves. They're not ravens, are they? That would be bad, biblically. I don't know what they are. They're birds. Holy Spirit's confirming everything that I'm saying right now. You should write it down. So this is what, man, we haven't even come close to it. We're never going to finish this passage today, but, but this is what it is. So Paul's saying, stop looking at yourself, stop this performance stuff, and look to Jesus as the author and finisher of your faith. So, if the law wasn't how we're supposed to be saved, and the law is not a, a, a change of program that God introduced, then why? Well, Paul even goes along with this in verse 19. He says, then why the law? What's the point of this law? Why is it given to us? Well, we've talked recently, one of them is the law reveals the character of God. When Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, show me your essence, teach me who you are, 
and God reveals his glory to him in the book of Exodus, what is it that he does? He declares his character. He says, I am the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, and there's this declaration of the character of God that makes up who he is. And so in the law, that's what we have. The law is a way that the people of God can look like their heavenly father. So when we read the law, we see um, just in the Ten Commandments alone, um, no other gods before me. It's God saying, look, there is no other God before me. Don't bother. No other God is as powerful. There is no God that can save you. That don't, don't even look anywhere else. It's graciousness to us. No graven images. He says the Sabbath teaches us about something that God desires that we have rest and that we enjoy the fruit of our labor and even more importantly, that we enjoy the fruit of God's labor. That's a gospel message in and of itself right there. But there's this idea of rest. The, the idea of things like God doesn't lie to us. His promises can be trusted. He says, don't lie. He's not a murderer. He's not a vengeful, angry God that just kills and punishes any way he wants, but he is a gracious, loving God. And you go on and on and on through all of the law, and we learn who God is and what God's like. So that's one purpose of the law. The second one we've talked a lot about is the law is a diagnostic. The law is a means by which we understand and learn that we're in need of salvation. The example we've used, if you take your car to the shop and it needs to get worked on, they plug in the diagnostic machine and it shows you what's wrong with your car. If you've hurt your knee or your elbow or something like that, you lay down in an MRI machine, they run the scan, it shows you what's broken. And this is what the law does for us. And this is why, here's why we need it. Most of us, if we were really honest, and I don't mean like we were trying to pretend like we're super spiritual Christian honest. I mean if we were like really on an average day honest. Most of us think or believe to some degree that we're pretty good people. Most of us do. And the reason that we do that, even if we don't want to admit it, is because our diagnostic tends to be other people. So what we do is we go, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that guy. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I don't do what that guy does, and I don't gossip like that girl does, and I don't smoke like that dude does, and whatever the things may be. And and that's really the way that we operate, most of us. We end up comparing ourselves one to another. And, And it's such a failed model, because think about what you're doing. You're making your standard, your diagnostic, someone else's weakness. You're taking their weakness and using that as a mechanism to say that you have everything together. It's a failed model. It doesn't work. But see, the law takes that away. The law says it doesn't matter what your brothers are doing. Here's God's standard. How do you match up with this? Boom, 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 boom. And then we see God's standard is quite a bit higher than our brother's drinking problem, right? And so it's a completely different diagnostic that brings people to the understanding, as Paul would say, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It brings us to the idea that every single one of us need a savior. It doesn't fix us. You can run those MRI MRI scans over and over and over. It's never going to fix your knee. It's just going to show you over and over what's wrong, and that's why we need a Savior, because we need more than to know we're broken. Deep down, we know we're broken. We need a Savior, and that's the law's purpose. And the third one is this, Paul says here, which is kind of new to us in this series. Verse 19, he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgression. So why did God give the law? Because the law restrains evil. Now, now, hear me on this. Don't misunderstand me. It restrains evil, does not prevent evil or cure evil. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The law restrains evil. The law and the penalty of breaking the law keeps most of us in this room from speeding too badly. You know what I mean by that? Now, now think about that. The penalty of law and the fear of losing license and jail or whatever it is keeps us from speeding too badly, but does it make us righteous so that we obey the law with no no how? No, because what do we do? If the speed limit's 70, what's our buffer? Four or five miles per hour? So we will, 70 miles an hour, we will set cruise control in 74 with confidence, (laughs) right? With confidence we would do that as if it's okay. I do that too. My buffer's more like six. <laughs> so, so think about that. There is a law that prevents every driver. If there was no law and was no limits, how many people in a given day would be doing 100 miles an hour up and down the freeway, running red lights, running stop sign, and causing all sorts of damage and havoc? The law restrains evil, but it doesn't fix the heart. 
Do do you realize how many murders would take place if there was no penalty for murder? I mean, just imagine. Just imagine. Imagine how many women would be in danger on a daily basis if there were no laws against rape. Can you imagine? So the law restrains evil, but it doesn't change the heart. It doesn't mean that no one wants to murder. It just means no one wants to go to jail, or most. And so doesn't touch the heart, but it is a grace. The law in and of itself is a grace to us that helps restrain evil. So it's not as bad as it could be. And, and you know, the, the place that I thought that's maybe most obvious for us in recent history even is when you look at things that happen, especially when there's large protests, places like Ferguson, we saw this stuff going on, that as soon as the law, in that case the police, are really kind of got their hands full with a thing over there, what happens with regards to laws regarding stealing? The limits are gone. And so suddenly, people that would never have gone into a store and just grab a TV and walk out with it are doing it left and right because the penalty and the burden of the law, at least to them, seems to be in that moment to have been re- removed. So that, the law is a grace to us. So if you ever think that the things we're teaching in Galatians mean that the law is wicked or bad, not so. It is a grace given to us. It's bad when we use it improperly. And so this is the case. So then what is the law? If the law doesn't change hearts, what's the purpose? He goes on to say in verse 19 that the law was added because of sin, but something more was needed. So he says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring spoken of earlier should come, to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now there's some cryptic language in here that is really debated and frankly um, not fully understood in most circles and I'm not gonna be foolish enough to think that I've got it figured out or to delve into it. But what it seems to be saying, um, and all these with small case letters, what it seems to be saying is that when the law was given, there was this series of intermediaries written by God. It appears that Paul's saying somehow maybe angels were involved in this transmission too, but it was at least given to Moses, and then the law came down the hill and was given to the people, and so there was this series of mediators or intermediaries between them. But, but it's one more way that we get to see that Jesus is so much greater than the law, because there are no intermediaries between. Jesus is the intermediary. You see what I mean? He came himself. He became flesh. He became on the cross. He became sin. Like he dealt with everything himself. So all these other people are involved in this. And how do we do this? Jesus just made it really simple. He said, I'm God myself. I'm here. I'm one. That's an amen, right? Jesus is so much better than the law. He goes on to say in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law was given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He says, okay, then then is the law and the gospel in contrast to one another? And he says, no. They're two totally different things with two totally different purposes. They're not in contrast to one another any more than I don't know, a rake and a shovel are in contrast to one another, or a screwdriver and a hammer are in contrast to one another. They have different purposes. It's different uses. A screwdriver is not opposed to a hammer. They're just used in different ways. But if you try to use a screwdriver to do a hammer's job, you get problems. And so too, the law was designed to do something different. It was never designed to impart life. So they can't be in contradiction. It was designed to point to that which does impart life, which is Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. And that's the purpose of the law summarized. The law took all of us and showed us that we are imprisoned to sin. And it removed any doubt if we're honest enough to look at it. And you guys remember last night, we walked through a lot, or last weekend, we walked through many of the Ten Commandments to show how we are all horribly guilty, helplessly guilty. And and remember, even the one that's the easiest one, like how many people in here have murdered? We asked, no one in here is murdered. So even in that one, we can go, well, at least we're nailing that one. And then Jesus comes and ruins it for us. Jesus comes and says, by the way, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're also guilty. So the whole purpose of the law was to show us not just that we fall short to God's glory as if a little bit of effort and we would have made it, 
but that we are horribly and helplessly imprisoned. And when we have been imprisoned by the evil dictator of sin, we don't need more effort. We're stuck. What we need is salvation and deliverance from prison. And that's the purpose of the law, to show us we need to be rescued. Verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now, this is gonna set this up for the little closing, last little part of this right here to help us understand not just the purpose of the law, but, but how the law should play into our lives even today after we've been saved. He says, the law was a guardian, or, or the word can also be translated tutor. Now, in that day, there was a cultural thing that was going on that Paul's referring to. Um, people had guardians or tutors, depending on where you were, that's the word that would be used, but it was usually a slave whose job it was was to take care of your child for you, if you were any one of means that could pull that off. So you might think nannies in our day and age to some degree, um, but it wasn't some fancy paid position. You were a slave, and this was your job. You made sure the kid got to school. You made sure the kid got his homework done, that he memorized his passages, that whatever the case may, may have been, that was your job. And the purpose of that nanny was to care for and guide that child to a place of maturity so that that child can be turned loose and that they're, you know, on their own productive member of society, whatever the case may be. That's your job. So he says, this is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is that you have been, wickedness has been restrained. Um, there, there's laws that govern the way we leave because there is greater joy in following God, but it's also intended to, as that same, if you will, chaperone or tutor would make sure that that child got where they needed to be and safely, so too, the law is designed to guide us into an understanding of Jesus Christ himself and that that's when spiritual maturity comes into play. It's amazing how so often we look at other people as being more spiritual or more spiritually mature based on what we see them doing. He's more mature because he doesn't watch rated R movies, and he's more mature because he only listens to K-Dove, and he's, you know, those kinds of things. But in the Bible, the people that are described as being spiritually mature are the ones that understand to the greatest degree that they've been saved apart from any of their efforts, and they don't put any of their identity or any of their understanding on their effort, and they put everything upon the back, if you will, of Jesus Christ and say, my faith is in him. That's spiritual maturity. I mean, someone who is more and more mature in Jesus should be more and more aware of their need in Jesus, not more and more confident of their walk in Jesus. In, in some ways, the more you learn about Jesus and the more you understand how holy he is, the worse you feel about your own walk in a lot of ways because you're constantly aware of how far you've fallen short. So, so that's what a mature Christian looks like. And the law was supposed to be this guide that gets us to that place. And so now, Paul says in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Now we have Christ. Now we've been saved. The guardian's not needed anymore. We've been delivered to our Father. We're no longer this school child wandering around helplessly. We've been delivered. We are free. The guardian's responsibilities are over. That's not needed anymore. Praise God, we're free. Amen? Okay, then, then we have to ask again. So then do we need the law anymore? Now that we're Christians, we're not under the law, we're not under the guardian, we've been brought to maturity in Christ, so we should just not worry about that anymore at all, right? Well, let the analogy play out. Is your purpose in raising your child, as you are a guardian for your child, is it that you would raise them to a place of spiritual maturity and at that point they would just cast off any of the values that you planted in them in their life and go live in a different way? Not at all. Our hope is that there are things that have been instilled in them that will govern them as they live, but, but this time willingly, not under compulsion. Does that make sense? So, so I'll give you an example. There's studies that have been done about why are children and youth in particular, why are youth leaving the church? Why is that? And so there's lots of studies, a lot of research, and one of the most common things that they're finding is, is a failure to understand, both by the church and by a lot of parents, to understand kind of the goals and what it is we're really trying to do as parents. Because so much of, of the upbringing for so many people over the years has been based on behavior modification. 
We want to teach our kids not to lie. We want to teach our kids not to steal. And that's really the primary focus. And if we do that, we're raising good young men and women. And churches have been absolutely, the church I grew up in, that was all. That was everything that we did. Every youth meeting was either about rock music or sex before marriage. That was every youth group meeting we ever had or smoking. We lived in North Carolina. There's a lot of that. So uh, that's, that was everything. So, but, it, but it's not working. But here, here's the understanding. When your child is young, like those of you with small kids here, I'm just guessing, odds are, if I was to say, hey, why is your kid in church this morning? You would say, because I got his lazy tail up and told him we were going to church. What do you mean? And that's what happened. That's how it works, right? Your child is in church because they are under your authority. So they follow the faith that you do. They're attending the Sunday school classes that represent the faith that you do. If you have boundaries within your home regarding movies or things, they're following those to one degree or another, at least when you're around, because that is the authority that you've put in place. But here's the thing. The goal is, as parents, for us to transition them from a position where their faith is based on authority to one that's based on personal experience. And here's what I mean by that. If a kid stays in that structure and all the way through high school, the only reason they're ever coming to church is because mom and dad make them. They've never had opportunity to learn to walk their faith out on their own, to really understand the reality of Jesus themselves. And then you send them off to college. What's happened now is that the authority structure has now changed. So you're not the authority anymore. So who's the authority? Peer groups, um, uh, pop culture, professors, I mean, if you send your child off to a extremely, let's say, extremely fancy liberal college, and now they've moved to a place where there's a new authority structure, and you are even paying thousands of dollars for them to sit under a teacher who's now contradicting the things of your faith. Think about how a kid processes that. I mean, they're going, well, I mean, this guy's really smart. In fact, mom and dad pay a lot of money for me to come learn from him. And And he's talking about all these things, and all my peers around me believe this. And you know, mom and dad, they didn't go to school like this either. Maybe they never really knew. And all he's doing is saying that they just believe all these old myths and stuff anyway. And do you see where everything starts to shift? Because the authority structure's changed. The goal is that at some place, and parents, let me encourage you to do this while they're still in the house. Let your child start learning how to walk through their faith, even the consequences of their sin while they're still home, because then you're still there to shepherd it. And, And if they leave before then, then it's too late. We've missed out on those opportunities. And this is the idea here. So so think about it. The law intends to guide us to an understanding of who Jesus is so that once we've been saved, we have all of this that's been implanted in us before, but now we're not following the law out of a compulsory, compulsory, because we have to. Now we're not following the law anymore because we have to. Now we're following the law willingly and joyfully out of grateful thanksgiving to the God who has saved us. And, and, and so you take it back to the idea that the law is this revelation of God's character because you go, man, God is my father and he's done all of this for me. And just like any kid who has a good dad wants to grow up to be like mom and dad, we look at these things and go, man, I, I can bring a manifestation of who God is to the world by growing in patience. Growing in patience, I should say, not impatient, that, that as I am forgiving to others, I'm telling people about my father who's so forgiving to me. So, so the law doesn't, doesn't go away, it changes. And this is just like Jesus. He obeyed the law perfectly, and then in Gethsemane, as he prayed to God, what did he say? He says, God, I have glorified you to the end. I have followed your law in such a way that has brought you glory and has revealed your attributes to the world around to the very end. And we, who have put our faith in Jesus, become followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, and so we end up doing the same thing. And and Paul goes on to finish. Verse 25, But now faith has come, and we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Next week, we dive into my favorite section of the entire book of Galatians, this idea of sons and heirs and adoption. And for some of us, it's an important passage because not all of us had great experiences with dads or moms to understand how this stuff played out. And a lot of us, like me, 
interpreted our view of how God feels about us through the lens of a father who was not as good and gracious and loving as God is. And so this next section is the kind of passage that can revolutionize your relationship with God. But let me just leave you with this. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, please know this. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care the sin that's been in your heart. I, I don't, if you got angry at me because I was talking too long and you were like, man, I've sinned against God during the message. You're walking out of here, Christian, based on the fact that Jesus Christ lived perfectly and that he loves you perfectly. And your standing is in that. Never let your standing be in your performance. Let your standing be in your status as an adopted child of God. You are forgiven. You are loved. He approves of you. And the very sound of your name is a delight to his heart, no matter how frustrated you might be at yourself. And that condemnation that your own heart yells back at you saying, you're not good enough, you're never going to pull this off. Jesus says, the word says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's not coming from God. He's not angry at you. He's not upset with you. He desperately loves you so much that he sent his own son to die on the cross so that you can be with him and be in his family. That's what you mean to him. He paid the greatest adoption price in history because he wanted you. He is a good, good father. Amen? But we'll dig into that next week. Will you stand and let's pray. God, will you help us to walk in this truth? Lord, your word says this. I'm so glad this man's words are in the Bible. Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And God, even as we leave this place, I know for a fact Satan is going to be whispering condemnation in the ears of many, many people. And it's going to be easy to forget the things that we studied or learned today and to go back to that old way of living. But Jesus, will you continue to be our shepherd? May your spirit be our guide. And may your word, be it in the law, epistles, anywhere, be that which leads us back into the arms of our good, good Father. I pray, God, even this week that we would meditate on these things. And I pray in particular for next weekend, Lord, as we open up your word and talk about the idea that we have been adopted. I pray, God, that you would just help us to understand more and more how amazing and great you are. So, Lord, for all of us, we do pray, Lord. In fact, we pray this together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you guys. I love you guys. Be here Wednesday night. We are going to be in the book of Amos, and then we'll see you on Sunday.